Good morning, Chicago. You're listening to Inspirational Perspective. I'm your host, Linnell Harris, your life coach right here on WVON 1690 AM, the talk of Chicago. Inspirational Perspective on your radio is all about murdering mediocrity and living the best life possible. So as I ask you every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Central Standard Time, are you living the best life possible? And this is the place to be to explore that possibility. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Another Sunday morning here in 2018, the last Sunday morning of 2018 how about that time does fly i saw a facebook post someone saying that january was moving very slow for them i had two questions i asked myself right away hmm if it's moving slow what are they up to (laughs) because i know for me with my goals it seems moving really fast seems like it's moving really fast or are they just ahead of schedule i hope it's the second one But either way, I'm excited about this morning's show. I have a special guest in the studio, Attorney Ernest B. Fenton. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. How are you? It's moving fast. (laughs) It's moving fast. Exactly. Exactly. My sentiment as well. Yeah. It's moving fast. But me too. Yes. We were just talking about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but anyway, I'm I'm, I'm excited to have you in in this morning. And for those of you listening... I asked attorney Fenton, or Ernest, as I'll probably call you for most of the show, to come into the studio this morning because I wanted to have a conversation about how one creates their life by having an intimate dialogue about your life in particular. I've had the opportunity to learn some of the intimate details, and I thought that listeners could really gain a perspective on what it means to commit yourself to being successful. Because we talk about that often. Mm-hmm. A lot of people hear me. But I think sometimes a switch in context is helpful. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I love about you, Ernest, is you don't beat around the bush. <laughs> no, because time is moving fast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I mean. Exactly what I mean. So I'm excited to have you in the studio. So one of the things that they'll get this morning is an intimate interview and dialogue to share your story. The other thing at the top of the next hour, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how you set goals. I want to have a personal goal setting conversation where, you know, we both can dialogue, discuss our formulas, Mm -hmm. our secrets, and some of the learnings we've had, maybe even some of the failures Mm -hmm. and setting goals and how we set goals today. And then at the eight o'clock hour towards the end, we'll also share our individual perspectives on what it means to be committed to success, as well as what we see, ultimately you, I think they've heard from me, you know, but what you see in terms of, you know, what's next for black America, you know, what's next for, for this community, you being a member of the community, you know, what would you say? And what is your perspective on that? So I'm, I'm excited about the next two hours for those of you listening, you know, stay dialed in. If for some reason, maybe you're headed to church, You're not going to catch the whole show. You can always follow up on Facebook. You can go to the Inspirational Perspective Facebook page. 
simply by Googling Inspirational Perspective. Or you can also go to YouTube and check out my YouTube channel, at Linnell Harris. That's L-I-N-A-L Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. The show will be posted there in the next 24 hours. But all that being said, I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get into your life story. And the first question I have for you, Mr. Fenton, is one of the the most interesting questions I got in an interview. I was doing this podcast interview some time back. And one of the most interesting questions I got was, Linnell, what makes you fascinating? And I was like, oh. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah, what makes me fascinating? Mm -hmm. And so I want to start with that because – I think listeners who know you, by the way, Ernest Fenton is a, also a colleague here at WBON, obviously an attorney, as I refer to him as attorney Ernest B. Fenton. And he has quite the resume. We'll get into that. Some of the questions I have will get into your resume. But I also know that you have a fascinating story. And to me, you are a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. But I'm always curious about people who are fascinating what they think is fascinating about them. Right. So I like to start with that question. Gracias, señor. <laughs> so, you know what? Okay, I'm going to start this way, right? I don't think that there's anything fascinating about me. Why am I not surprised that you say that? Let me tell you this, <laughs> but then I'm going to answer the question. Okay. First, I have to begin by saying, okay. Linnell, stop it. There's nothing fascinating oh. about me. Okay. Okay, if you say so, but you got you have to. Let me to. tell you, I got to say, I got to say what? I think of Oprah. Uh-huh. And I think the beauty of Oprah is that she is an extraordinary woman. Mm-hmm. No, she's a ordinary woman okay who has accomplished extraordinary things that's thus that's fascinating thus she is defined as an extraordinary Person. woman got it but in fact she's simply an ordinary woman mm-hmm. who does extraordinary things i lo- i like how you laid that out and i hope <laughs> I, I, I hope i hope the listeners are really listening yeah i hope they're really listening to what you just said yeah so like there's really, you know, so I'm really not that fascinating. I'm engaged. Uh-huh. And that's fascinating to people. Got it. Got it. It's because I've learned to live my life without a lot of the barriers that people create for their lives mm-hmm. that it appears that I operate outside of the confines of fear. And that is fascinating. I have so somewhat broken the stigmas attached to young black men and people find that fascinating. All right. So you said something. You said you're engaged. Explain to me what that means. Explain to the listeners what that means to be engaged. I'm like clear on life is happening around me. Okay. And I'm also clear on that on I have to participate in that life happening around me. Mm -hmm. I'm clear on I have the power to create what that life happening looks like. Thus, it is not just happening around me. I'm actually creating what it is. Oh, so you must be engaged to the point at which you begin to create what's happening. That's an engagement. A lot of people, they're responsive to their life. Okay. 
and I'm active in creating my life. That's engagement. People so, are fascinated by that. So let so let me let me clarify, just because uh, you know I think we speak the same language, but I want to put this in layman's terms. Yeah. Okay, what I just heard you say is that you are taking full responsibility for your life. You're taking full responsibility for your life and that you've worked really hard not to be victimized or add effect of the environment or the other things around you. So thus, by being fully engaged and responsible, then you're being proactive versus reactive. Yeah. OK, got it. And I almost forgot about that part. <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't occur to me. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh-huh. And that's that's my goal. My goal is to not even operate in a space of that I'm doing something in resistance to something else. Uh. Because in that, then you're also subject to that something else. Yep. I just want to be clearly present to me and what I desire in my life. Love it. Love it. So clearly present to you and what you desire in your life. So so with that, I think that's a that's a great that's a great place to then talk about who Ernest Fitton is. So how did you get here? All right, because all of us go through some type of evolution process, right? We yeah. evolve, right? I look at my son right now. He's seven months and he's curious. He's, I mean, everything excites him, Okay. right? Everything excites him. Last night, him and I were spending some time together. My wife was out with her sisters and uh, I had him on the couch. I, was, I had a college basketball game in the background. Mm-hmm. And him and I were just playing on the couch. And there's not that many toys, right? There's the line in the couch, like the little him in the couch. Mm-hmm. And he sees it. It's a him in the couch. Right. He sees it and he's playing with it, right? He's pulling it. He's, he, so he's, he's evolving. So we all went from that curiosity stage to where we are now. How did Ernest Fenton get here? I mean, I got to jump on your story, though. Okay. Okay. First off. A blessing can be found in a blade of grass. True. So I'm clear on that. Right. Right. Not all the time, but Mm -hmm. I I have to remind myself that blessings are everywhere. My son is reminding me every day. Correct. That's what Linnell just said. He said he's looking at the hem. The hem. We missed the blade of grass. Yep. And how beautiful and unique it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if your life started in a concrete jungle where you had no grass. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Then when you start, when you have the, the blessing of feeling grass under your feet, then maybe you'll be more present to the grass mm. and everything sort of that's around the grass and that sort of manifests itself as grass. So that's one easy, that's one sort of easy way of saying it, but I don't think it's just that quote-unquote simple, although it's not simple. Yeah, I, I was going to say, so what does that mean? What does I, that I, mean? Right, I'm going there. I'm going to the meeting. Okay. I mean, I have so many memories of my mother and my father. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm starting at 39th and Lake Park. My memories go back as far as when I was three years old. Okay. Like, I actually remember being potty trained. Okay. I remember wow. pulling down my diaper and sitting on my pot behind the door in 39th and Lake Park in, in Madden Park. Okay. 
you know, I remember at five, like we were moving from the quote unquote projects to the big time Markham, you know, when it was all white and right, sunny right, and right. grass. And grass. I went from I went from that. I went from the fear of the gunshots to grass in a backyard. In a, oh, my God. I lost my mind. I thought we went a mansion. Yeah. At a basement. Like, what is a basement? So at that point, did you have this uh, feeling of wealth and richness as a young child? For that brief moment. Okay. Because I recall having the same feeling at about eight or nine years old. I remember asking my mother, who's probably listening now, Ma, are we rich? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And partly because growing up, moving to the suburbs at a young age, and then having a home like that, right? Yeah. You're kind of like... Okay, this is different from other people. Hmm. Interesting. Right. We have two vehicles. Hmm. Interesting. I have a backyard. My cousins, my friends don't all have that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Right. So interesting prospects. So tell me more. Tell me more about this process that made Mr. Fenton, Mr. Attorney Fenton, who he is. So that tr- that's a transition. Mm-hmm. That's a defining moment. Madden Park to Markham was a defining moment in what you said, having the grass. Right. And then you said, well, did you feel rich in that moment? I was like, for a moment, until I met the white kids down the street. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then they had a go-kart in the garage. I'm like, hold on, I don't have a go-kart. In an Atari. And an Atari. I'm like, hold on, I don't have an Atari. Exactly. Yeah. And their own bedroom. Well, hold up. I don't have my own bedroom. Mm -hmm. That they can close the door. Yeah. (laughs) And a mini bike. Yeah. So I had that experience. Okay. I had the experience of 1975 walking down the street and they were, and you know, every day somebody be like, nigger, get off our block. Mm. I had that experience. Yeah. I never claimed to have grown up in the sixties, but in 1975 on our side of Markham, it was all white. I knew every black person in my area in Markham. So I was called nigger every day and I watched what I thought to be their exceedingly abundant wealth relative to ours. What kind of impact did it have on you? Because I, so in high school, actually a little bit before high school, about seventh grade, my mother enrolled us in an all-white school. Yeah. My brother and I were the only black, we were the first and only for a while. Right. Maybe for a year. Only black children. Then a, a young, a girl, she was mixed. Yeah. And I think it made it a little easier, probably not. For her, right? But uh, we were the only ones. And so that, I had that experience. Yeah. And it taught me some things. What did that teach you? It taught me, it taught me that I had to compete. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I learned competition, although I learned competition in the projects, because in the projects, in my head, I don't think of it as the projects, but it was the projects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, we competed. We played strikeout. You know, we ran, who can, you know, who can, how many times can you go, you know, across the monkey bars? So we were, we were competing, but we were accustomed to competing against one another. Uh So when I moved to the, when we moved to the white neighborhood and I was in the white classrooms, I had to compete against white people in first grade. And I was conscious of that. And I also, at the time, I remember watching TV. I used to love watching TV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had this idea that, that white people they were kind of better. At least they were in a better position than you were. So I had which, to learn that. Which, by skills. the way, real, real quick, which, by the way, one of the things that I've learned in studying human behavior, one of the things I've learned is how powerful imagery can be. Yeah. 
and why we thought some of those things, right? Because, yeah. I mean, the television, I mean, TV we were watching, mm-hmm. basically the underlying message was what you just said, yeah. right? White people are better. Um, for our women, they're more beautiful, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the marketing all says that, right? Yeah. And one of the things I talk to my listeners about is inputs, 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 watch your inputs. And that's the type of impact that I know inputs probably had on us as Gen Xers yeah. growing up in that era. Right. Mm-hmm. And something I had to kind of detox yeah. myself from. Yeah. We can get into that in the next hour. I want to hear more about your story. But it's just interesting to hear you say that. But please continue. Yeah. So that's when I really started to understand that I had to compete. Mm. And, you know, I like I also started finding out things about myself, which was I was OK with the competition. Like I had to rise up to the competition. Mm-hmm. Linnell. That was in first grade. Okay. Where for you, it was like, all right, I'm cool with this. I'll, yeah. I'll compete. Let me tell you. I told you my memories go back as far as three years old when I'm being potty trained. Mm-hmm. I remember first grade. I remember that I was in a first grade classroom. When you walk through the door, my desk was on the left. Mm. I remember that we had a first and second grade classroom combined. Second grade was on the west side. First grade was on the east side of the classroom. I remember coloring and wanted to make certain. I used to look around and say, well, I color better than all of them. Nice. Okay. So it sounds like early on, competitiveness was a strength. Yeah. Okay. I also noticed something else. The few other black folk in my class, they weren't as competitive as me. Mm. Like, we were falling behind early. Uh. We were coloring outside the lines what do you think that is i'm guessing right Uh but what i think it is is that their parents were from the 60s and for us to make it was to just be there but when we got there we didn't understand that we had a right Uh, to compete we had already won by our mere presence we had we we had competed to be present yes but and so because there was a competition to be present when we had yes. the opportunity to be present, we weren't necessarily present. Correct. Got it. Got it. Mm. Correct. Which I think is happening now. We're just happy to be in the room. Let's save that for the next hour. So continue. continue. <laughs> I, was, I was going to stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So continue. So, you know, that was another, that's that, you know, the language, that's that breakthrough. Right, right. So, and it, it continued on. It just elevated first grade to second grade and so on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then personally, I didn't grow up in a perfect household. So, like, we made it to Markham, but my, my household was like, we were still in the projects. Right. When you closed the door, uh-huh. we were in the projects. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So, we had, like, one foot in, one foot out. So, there was, like, a lot of, of um, a lot of aggressiveness. Mm. In my household, my father was an alcoholic. He was drunk every day by 10 o'clock. I'm watching that. Mm. But maybe noon. Okay. But he got up every day. He was an entrepreneur. Yeah. Okay. And he got up every day and he went to work drunk every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? which, Which, by the way, again, the more I learn about human behavior, the more I, you know, one of the things that it's been said even now is that African-Americans are dealing with more stress in their everyday lives 
than their counterparts, than their white mm-hmm. counterparts, right? Part of the reason why we have some of the significant health issues. Now, some of it, too, is because we're not taking care of ourselves, yeah. right? And so because we are stressed out, we're reacting to the stress, not taking care of ourselves and eating, things like that. But all that being said, African-Americans are dealing with more stress. And so hearing you say that about your dad, you know, one of the things I would challenge listeners to think about is whether you're functioning or not, how are you dealing with that stress? Yeah. How are you dealing with that? And what's the impact on your family? Right. Yeah. So, like, that was breakthrough for me. Okay. For the next 10 years, you know, I was dealing with this, it's Dubois, Mm -hmm. the duality of a black man, the duality of black folk, you know, it's like on the one hand, I'm a black man. On the other hand, I'm an American. On the one hand, I'm privileged in this white community going to this nice school. On the other hand, you know, I'm still in the hood. Got it. So let's fast forward to high school. Tell me yep. about high, your high school experience. Because <laughs> we had similar, well, similar in terms of like how we, we flew through high school. Yeah. So you flew we through. We slept through. I slept through high school. Okay. Like, at least in elementary school, I was somewhat engaged. I was there. Right. You know, and I know it's about me, but I'm just like, I got to say it is, you know, we start breaking down in elementary school. I got to say this. Please do. Because I, I, I love I got, I got to say, I got to say this. Yeah. Black boys in particular. Uh-huh. They, see, we're cute and cuddly at one and two, and our mamas have us under their bosom, and our daddies are carrying us around on their necks mm-hmm. when we're one, two, three, and four. By the time we make it to elementary school, the world starts telling us, hey, you're not that important, you're not that significant, and you ain't that cute. Mm-hmm. So they start breaking us down by first grade. Got it. Got it. By the time we make it to high school, we're broken. That's why you see these young black boys fall off so heavy. Mm. high school was a transition for me. And I just had a breakthrough in that conversation because I could have checked out in high school. That's when I started checking out. Got it. You know, and then people stop, they stop watching after you. Yeah, that's the, yeah. You have more freedom. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So high school was like, how fast can I get this over? I wasn't thinking about education. I wasn't thinking about learning. I was just like, okay, I have to take this test, and I have to make certain that I pass so I can get out of here. Mm-hmm. And that was high school. And high school was, you know, now no one cares. No one, I mean, in elementary school, if, you know, if I'm pouting, the teacher will come over to you and be like, what's wrong, you right, know? Right, right, what's right. wrong, Brandon? Are you okay? Do I have to, where's your homework? High school, they're not asking for your homework. Pass your homework up to the front. If you don't have it, you get an F. End of the conversation. Right. So high school, you know, I just let it pass by. But one significant thing happened to me in high school. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was high school. Right. I was a CD student. Mm-hmm. But I always knew I was smart. Right. Because, like, I didn't get my C's and D's in a traditional manner. <laughs> okay, tell, tell me. Tell me. <laughs> See, most CD students, they just like, they take tests and they get D's. Mm-hmm. And they, so they become a D student, not me. I take tests and I get A's and B's. Mm-hmm. And then I wouldn't take the next test. Oh, you're like, ah, whatever. I don't need to take it. 
I knew the odds. Oh, because I got an A. Yes. So now I can eat it out and get a C. Correct. Got it. Got it. Okay. So first quarter, I made certain to at least get a B. Mm-hmm. Second quarter, I would get a C. Finals, I wouldn't study. I'd get a D or an F. And the teacher wouldn't like me because I didn't show effort. So they give me a D or they give me a C minus. Got it. Got it. And I didn't care. It was an even trade. Because you're like, I'm graduating. I'm graduating. I'm out of here. I failed. I got to tell us, mm-hmm. Linnell, I don't like talking about this, but my first year in high school and all through elementary school, I was like an A student, mm-hmm. right? In middle school, you know, I was always A, B, top of the class. So when I get to high school, my first semester of high school, I didn't know the rules of the road. Right. That's that dysfunction in the household. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents didn't know. They didn't know to sit me down and say, hey, this is high school. It's not like elementary. No one. I didn't have that conversation. Right. So I had an English class. Right. And it was with a black woman. I can't remember her name. But short of it is, quote, unquote, she failed me. I failed myself. Okay. I'm not, I never thought that it was possible that I could get an F. Like, that never occurred to me. But she actually failed, quote, unquote. She failed me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I had to take the class over. I never had this experience. I've never had a failure. Got it. And so then I was like, hold on. Let me get this straight. I need X amount of credits. The fact that I have an F in this class means I need to take this class over. I need to sit through it. One more time. I never failed another class. Hmm. Now, yeah, tell me why that was. A, <laughs> tell me why that was an important lesson. Because I get it. It clicks. Why was that an important lesson for you? One, I did not have a relationship to failure. Mm-hmm. So it introduced you to it. It introduced me to failure. Got it. <laughs> Got it. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And then two, I was committed to getting out of there, and that was holding me back. So anything holding me back is my enemy. Ah. Uh. And I don't play with time like that. So I, I need to repeat what you just said. <laughs> what you just said was profound. Because people are probably like, why are we talking about attorney Ernest Fenton's high school experience? I want to get to more. But this is important because this is what forms who we are. That's why I'm cool with this conversation. And what I just heard you say is you, you created a relationship with failure. Like this cre- helped you create a relationship to failure. And you realized that by failing, you had to do something again. Yeah. Which means that you were spending this time. Yeah. That you had already spent on the same thing. And then you said something that about commitment. That you were committed to getting through high school. Yeah. And because of the commitment, you were like, I can't do this again. Correct. Huge. Yeah, it was huge. And I mean, what are you, 14, 15 years old? Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Okay. (laughs) So that was high school. What happens then that begins to form who you are? Well, high school, clearly, you know, I wasn't interested in education. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a relationship with the education. Got it. Just with the institution. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And so at 16, you know, I I started looking forward and I was saying to myself, what am I going to do when I get out of here? Okay. And so let me back up two steps, right? Mm-hmm. I failed that first class. I forgot how many credit hours you need. What is it? 30 credit hours to graduate in high school, I whatever can't, it is. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. 24, whatever. Let's just call it 30 for the sake of it, right? Right. After I failed that class, Linnell, and I knew that I had to take it again, I never, my final grade in class through high school was never an A. 
Mm-hmm. I never got a final grade of an A. And I remember taking the last prerequisite I had my final year in high school, which was English. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be that way because I failed that first semester. Right. Everything else was an elective except for English because I had failed that first. Ele- that was the only class I ever received an A in straight A's across the board hmm. going out the door. Nice. Now, I have to say, mind you, I was a CD student. I walk out the door with an A. But here's the other part. I finished in three and a half. So I was also a troubled student. You know, I didn't make it out of a week without detention. I got suspended every semester. Mm-hmm. I got kicked out for 10 days. You know, fights, you know, race wars. I was a part of all that, mm-hmm. you know. Well, my principal and I had a relationship as such. I was a troubled you child. Were, you were a troubled Not yeah. a smart child. I was a troubled child. Right. And so I remember, um, but secretly I was working behind the scenes to collect my credits they didn't understand. They were looking at my C's and D's and my detentions, but they weren't looking at my credits. Mm-hmm. I was only focused on my credits because I knew if I had enough credits, I could graduate. Mm-hmm. I remember walking into the principal's office my third year, at the end of third year, or like the beginning of like senior year, I graduated in three and a half years. I remember walking into the principal's office and I said to him, I said, hey, I need you to look over these papers and sign off on my graduation. He said to me, Ernest, are you graduating? He wasn't talking about early graduation. Like, period. (laughs) He thought I wasn't going to graduate, period. He hadn't checked me out. He thought I was like the other black boys failing all the classes. I wasn't. I was getting C's and D's. Mm -hmm. And I knew that. One point in that is, and I got to juxtapose that to today, black boys be playing sometimes, too. Mm -hmm. We got some consciousness in our own dysfunction. Absolutely. And (laughs) one of the things I heard, one of the things I heard that's important is if you had defined yourself by how other people defined you, you would have lost early on. That's what I'm saying. I would have broken. I would have broken elementary school. Yeah. And, And for any young person listening right now, that is key that you define yourself. No one defines you and you cannot allow them to define you by what it is that you're doing. And what it is that you're not doing. Yeah. So I walk into his office. He's like, Fenton, you're graduating? Mm -hmm. He says, have a seat. (laughs) He went in. He pulled out his books. I think he may have had a computer at the time, as strange as that may sound. I just know he checked something. Right. And he looked. I said, no, I'm not here to graduate. I'm graduating early. Yeah. And I saw the look on this white man's face. When I told him I was graduating early. Remember that failure mm-hmm. I had first year? Right. Welcome to my victory. Uh, so. <laughs> yes. Yes. So then what is that? What does that do to Ernest Fenton moving forward? Because here you are. You have no college aspirations. No. You have this feeling about education. You know, it's probably inconvenient at this point. Yeah. And so you decide to go to the military. Yeah. So tell me uh, quickly about the military experience and how that transformed. 16, I say, I I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'm going to the military. So I speak with the recruiter in Country Club Hills. Never forget it. Mm -hmm. Right across from Hillcrest High School. The recruiter calls my parents. 
schedules a meeting, goes to my house, sits my parents down. My parents sign off on the paperwork. I'm 16. Right. So they had to sign. Yeah, they had to mm-hmm. sign. Mm-hmm. So I finish up high school three and a half years. Two weeks later, I'm in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I'm 17 years old. I remember my father and my best friend at the time dropping me off at the uh, bus station. 17. 17. Mm-hmm. Getting on a bus with rucksacks being pushed on. Take me on a bus to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And I spend the next 16, 17 weeks in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I'll fast forward. And then I was shipped off to Fulda, West Germany, which was five clicks, five kilometers from the um, East German border. At the time, we were during the Cold War. So in 1988, at the age of 17 years old. In the middle of it. I'm in the middle of the Cold War. 17. 17. We would do border patrols. And I would go to the border, and literally you can look across the border and you could see Russian soldiers walking on the Berlin Wall. Mm. It was a big wall with a gate, and they'd be on top of the wall, and they'd walk and patrol the wall. I just picked up something, and it, it just taught me a lot about you. At 17 years old, you find yourself inserted into tension. Yeah. I mean, that's tension. Yeah. You're a teenager. And you are now in the thick of tension. Yeah, but let me turn it, Linnell. Mm-hmm. That was light work for me. Okay. And tell me why. Because I grew up in an aggressive household. Ah, you're used to tension. This is nothing. Yeah. That yeah. was relaxed. Uh, got it. You follow? Yep, got it. Got it. I grew up walking down the street being called nigger. I grew up in mm. classrooms where black boys were failing. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up where white principals thought I was not going to graduate. Mm. I had to figure my way through all of that. So you were used to the tension. Oh, yeah. You just taught me something about my own experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I didn't realize how used to tension I am. Man, come on. And how that has helped me. Yeah. I, it just clicked. Yeah. In this conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, let me share this. And you know I'll twist it on you. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, Linnell. I got to say this. Yeah. That's why I tell people, and it's not braggadociousness. I give you this spirit. I'm like, man, I'm used to pressure. I invite pressure. I look for pressure just so I can crush it. Got it. Because if you try to avoid pressure, particularly as a black man in America, you're doomed. But so... I love I, I, I love I love where you're going and you're 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 100 percent correct. You're 100 percent correct because there's no way to avoid it as a black man, even as a black woman. And if you're trying to avoid it, you find yourself reacting to pressure everywhere around you. Right? Yes. So then you become a victim. Yes. So I, I love where you're looking. So now what? So here you are. You're in Germany. How does I mean you're in another country. Yes. Now, one of the things that we talked about in the studio a second ago before we walked in was the similarities in our story. Very different stories, but certain similarities. I graduated high school three and a half years. Right. Very different story, though. All white mm-hmm. high school. I left home at 17. Didn't go to the military. I moved from the suburbs to the west side of Chicago because right. I can get a cheap apartment and it can get me out the house. I was the oldest of six. Had to get out of there. Right. Right. Partly because my parents were so strict. That was my pressure. That was my tension. Right. right. Then I find myself in Europe very early on in my life. And here you are, 17 years, 17 years old in Europe. How did that define your experience? I learned that the world was bigger than 39th and Lake Park. And why is that important? 
Why is that important to your evolution? Because now I had a global view of what my possibility was. I was no longer limited by 39th and Lake Park. I was no longer limited by the little suburb called Markham. Yeah. Now I'm like, I can go anywhere. Yes. And do anything. So the opportunity to leave your comfort zone, because, I mean, that's what I'm looking at, right? Yeah. And go to a place that may not be that uncomfortable, but it's different. It opens up the realm of possibility shifted your thinking in what ways like so tell me like for i can give you an example and this is where i'm trying to go yeah i remember 23 years old having the opportunity well i saved my money i saved as much money as i could other people were partying drinking i'm like i'm going to europe these white boys that i know are going to europe i need to see (laughs) what they going to europe for i mean seriously yeah. Right. Because, again, I went to an all white high school. Yeah. 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 So my experience was like, well, what are they doing? <laughs> right. Right. Like. Right. What's what, before they went to college? They took a year in Europe. Why is that important? Right. right? I need to check this out. <laughs> so I, I get to I get to Europe and I remember being in Rome mm-hmm. and looking at monuments that were thousands of years old mm-hmm. with somebody's name on it. Right. And being like. Yo, this dude. Whoever he was, 2,000 years ago, he's still relevant right now. Like, someone is talking about him right now. Yeah. He is immortal. Yeah. How do I achieve that? Yeah. And it changed my thinking in terms of what I could create. Right. It it just flipped everything for me. What did it do for you? The overseas part or the military, all of that? All of it? Was it the overseas part? All of it, yeah. Four things happened, right? Mm -hmm. Number one. I realized that all the people who were calling the biggest shots mm-hmm. had something in common that was education. Mm-hmm. So I had a shift. I said, I then got that education was important. That was number one. Clicks. Boom. It clicked within six months of me being in the military. I was like, I must have an education because all of the officers, all of the people in charge uh-huh. had something in common. Education. That was number one. Got it. Number two, I also saved some money. Number two, I started creating a relationship with, well, a greater relationship. My father taught me that with money Mm -hmm. because I was receiving a monthly check. Mm -hmm. I received, I got to tell you this one. At my height, I was receiving $650 a month as my salary in the military because I was an E2, a private. Got it. And um, of the $650, I had $500 allotted to an account. That my mother was on at Standard Bank on 183rd and Kedzie. Wow. I lived off $150 a month for a year and a half. Mm. So by the second week, I was broke and I'd eat in the mess hall and I'd go to McDonald's and literally order one hamburger. Literally. Mm-hmm. Linnell, I'm 18. I learned discipline, man. Yep. I'm disciplined. I was just laughing with my wife because I've been looking at this sofa. For like a year and a half. And she's like, what is wrong with you? And we got the sofa and I'm sitting on it. I'm like, I'm strategic and I'm disciplined. And I take my time. As, as much as it looks like I just jump out there and uh-huh. I do crazy. No, 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 no. Yep. <laughs> so I learned discipline. Number three, in September, I believe September 21st, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. 
You were there. I was there. Get out. I was part of history. I didn't know that. Yes, sir. I remember the sirens went off September 21st, 1989. Wow. Wow. And East Germans started rushing over to the West German side. I'm thinking, grab the M16 because it's about to go down. It's a problem. And they opened the gates. Mm. And East Germans started coming on the base. I went off base to a McDonald's. And they were rushing into the McDonald's because East Germans never tasted McDonald's, but they heard about it. <laughs> they were rushing in from Berlin. I have a piece of the Berlin Wall at my mother's house. Uh-huh. I bought some East Germans a hamburger. I learned freedom. Uh... I learned that I have an opportunity that a lot of people don't have, even some white people. So you, in that moment... Got a glimpse of one, the privilege you had. Democracy. And possibility. Beyond. And very interesting. Very, very. In- and, and the reason I say that is because I think so many of us are focused on the uh, restrictions or the restrictions we feel. Right. Yeah. Or the inequities that we encounter. And what we're not looking at is what is the opportunity? Yeah. Like, how can I take advantage of my current space, my current place? Yeah. That's what I just got from that. Yeah. Nice. That was that was tremendous. So that was that was what you got from being in Germany. I'm sure you moved around a little bit. Well, I saved my money. Yeah. Uh, You know, I stayed broke and hungry. Mm -hmm. And at 19, and I'll tell the story a little bit later, but short of it when I and I won't leave it, but. When I left the military, I had saved $10,000. Nice. And I never had more than probably $100 in my life. So at age 19, you, you have $10,000 in the bank. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The other fourth part about being in the military is that the, some of the, the money that I was saving that my mother only had access to, a standard bank, I told her to send me some money. It was about $500, mm-hmm. maybe 700 And I purchased a ticket to do a tour of Europe. And I went on a tour of Europe by myself. I was 18. And so we went to Paris. I went to Amsterdam. We stopped in Belgium, mm-hmm. Switzerland, down to Italy. And, you know, it was like day to day, one day here, one day there. And that was eye-opening. That was eye-opening for me. That's when I really start having the connection with travel and fashion. So a lot of people, they yeah. see how I dress. Right, right, right. I got a lot of, I, def- I refined my fashion sense by my travels in Europe. And, you know, well, it's, it's hard not to see the fashion in Europe. Yeah. They're fashion forward. Definitely. Yeah. 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 But you, you, you said something. You did this by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another similarity that I see between you and I is my first in international travels by myself. Yeah. And I couldn't get anybody to go with me. <laughs> right. Europe. You're going to man, you crazy. Why are you going there? Right. And, and one of the things I learned early on in my experience was that if I wait on other people, if I depend on other people, I will get nothing done. Yeah, that's what I just got. Yep. I will get nothing done. And I see that for you, you and I, I already know this about you. Both of us as businessmen, you have no problem venturing out on your own. Right. And a lot of us are victims of our community, our families. Oh, they won't do it. Yeah. If somebody would just help, yep. I would be so much further. Yeah. 
If my wife would just keep her promises. Yeah. If my husband would just do what he say he going to do. Yeah. If my sister, if my brother. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you say in this moment is, nah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm about to go do it. Yep. Yep. And that's how life goes. Yeah. 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 So that was defining. Those were like those four, you know, really defining. Oh, and it's one other. Mm-hmm. Is that I was in a small room, probably about the size of the studio, well, a little smaller. And um, I had four roommates mm-hmm. in one room. So there were two sets of bunk beds and a single bed. Mm-hmm. I don't remember all their names. We we had nicknames for one another. They just called me Fenton. Okay. And um, and then I had a guy. His name was Boris. Mm. And Boris taught me a lot. Then there's another guy. His name was Lumpkin. He was a black guy from down south, real affable guy. Everybody loved Lumpkins, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had another guy. I can't think of his name, but he was from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And he was a troublemaker, right? He's always in trouble. You know, he got kicked out of the military. But Boris, I'll go to Boris. Boars was from Nebraska. Okay. What was interesting about Boars is that Boars from Nebraska came through the door telling us that he was from the Klan and that he didn't like niggas. Mm. He was my roommate. So how'd that go? Went well. Interesting because the one person I had, <laughs> the one person <laughs> I had a problem with, yeah. no, real talk, uh-huh. the one person I had a problem with in high school who called me nigger. Uh-huh. Right. And we got into a fight early on, both on, this, on the basketball team. Part of it was I was uh-huh. taking his spot on the team. Right. Right. So I think that kind of fueled his passion. Mm-hmm. To this day, we're still friends. Yeah. <laughs> so let me tell you how yeah. I went with Boris, right? Yeah, tell me. This is why I'm able to, in part, navigate. But, but you see how all my life is connected. Mm-hmm. Because I learned to deal with white people and prejudices early on. Same here, same here. And how to compete despite what they were saying and how I felt. Ah. See, hold hold on. Despite what they were saying, but how you felt about it. Yeah. That's huge. I had, in high school, it was the same thing. I still had to compete no matter how I felt. Because many of us get caught in our feelings, man. Yeah. Man, we get so caught up in our feelings. They don't like me. Yeah. So I didn't do my homework? (laughs) What does what does they don't like you have to do with you doing your homework? Or, or they don't like me, so that's why I don't do a good a good job at my yeah. in my workplace. Yeah, because my boss don't like me. Yeah, right. So what I learned, and I learned this early on, and you know I was trained to deal with the boars, mm-hmm. but being I never had to be in the same room with those guys that I grew up with. Yeah. Now I'm in the same room. Mm-hmm. What I learned is that like a lot of that is insecurity, and they just don't know. Boars didn't know black people. He knew no black people. No context. Only what he'd been taught. Only what he would have been taught. Right. And then we got to the point where Boris would be going to get something to eat. And he'd be like, hey, Fenton, you want me to bring you something back? I'm like, yeah, man. He'd get back. He'd, like, he'd say, you know I don't like niggers, though, right? I said, you know I don't like white folk, though, right? Right. We laugh. Boom. Keep it moving. Beautiful. All right. So we, we got a few minutes left. We're at the top of the hour. Some of this we might have to take into the 8 o'clock hour. So those of you who are listening, anybody who tuned in, having the opportunity to interview attorney Ernest B. Fenton and uh, talk about a little bit about his life story. Those of you who, who listen to Mr. Fenton, hopefully this is a special gift for you to learn a little bit more about the voice behind the social justice hour. And then I know you have a lot of clients or people who you've helped who may be listening and they can get a little learn a little bit more about your intimate process and and what's happened for you. And so thank you all for joining. Now we got three minutes left real quick. 
So you come back, you go to Chicago State University after you learn this lesson about education. I know that because I've listened to a speech you've yeah. given. Okay. And then you are the first Chicago State University alumni to be accepted into Harvard Law School. Yes. Which you shared is basically an impossible feat and has not been done since. Yeah. How did you do that? You're asking me that question right now. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how did you do that? See, th- see, this is the thing. And this uh, is one of the things to me that makes you fascinating uh-huh. is that somewhere, and we, we'll cover this in the next hour because I'm sure it's a goal. I'm sure you, it's something clicked and said, I need to go to Harvard. You made it a goal, and then you worked the goal. Yeah. Right? Yes. Same thing for me. I didn't graduate from, from school from ba- with my bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. But when I made the transition to an, as, to an executive in corporate America, I was like, that's my goal. I'm right. about to do that. Right. right? It's impossible, especially for a black man. Impossible. Yes. No, it ain't. We're going to talk about, about that in the next hour. Stick around. How do men like myself, Ernest Fenton, do the impossible by setting audacious goals. That was an audacious goal. Mr. Finn, that was ridiculous to think <laughs> that as a black man going to Chicago State University that you could just somehow put yourself into Harvard Law School. Who, who do you think you are, sir? We're going to talk about that in the next hour. So please stick around. Please keep listening. I think you're going to learn something. We're also going to pivot a bit and move to goal setting. So what you just heard from Mr. Attorney Fenton is he is a goal setter. He didn't say it, but it's obvious. And what I want to do in the next hour is begin to still talk about his story, but tap into the science. It's a science Mm -hmm. of goal setting. We're going to learn some of your secrets, sir, some of the formulas you have for setting goals. Please stick around. You've been listening to Inspirational Perspective with Linnell Harris. Thank you all so much for listening. Stick with us. It will be an even better show in the next hour. I promise you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. All right, we're back. You're listening to Inspirational Perspective. I'm your host, Linnell Harris, your very own life coach right here on WVON 1690 AM, the talk of Chicago. I have with me in the studio attorney, attorney Ernest Fenton. Good morning again, sir. Good morning. So if you're just now joining, you missed an excellent, excellent 60 minutes where attorney Fenton shared his experience, his story. Um, really from childhood. I mean, he went back to three years old. Memories from three years old. Yeah. All the way through. So we got all the way through your elementary experience, your high school experience, how those things made you, your military experience, how that introduced you to the global opportunity and gave you a, a different sense of freedom and possibility mm-hmm. that, that have had a significant impact on you. When we finished off the hour, we were talking about the audaciousness and ridiculousness of how you set goals, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and for those of you who are just tuning in, what I, what I mean by that is, so attorney Ernest Fenton, he leaves the military. Uh, you took advantage of the GI Bill? Yes. And goes to Chicago State University. Now, fast forwarding a little bit. Mm-hmm. Gets his bachelor's in business management. Yes. And then decides that, he wants to go to Harvard Law School. Right. So tell me about that. And by the way, stick around because at the end of this hour, I have a big announcement 
you don't want to miss this announcement. So make sure you stick around. But for the meantime, Attorney Finn. Yeah, just let me clarify. I did not necessarily decide that I wanted to go to Harvard Law School. Okay. What I decided was is that I wanted to empower myself where I could be unstoppable. Uh, okay. All right. So you make a decision that you want to empower yourself where you can be unstoppable. Yep. And so, get smart. So, And I love this. I love this. I love this because that was the goal. Yes. That was the goal. That was the objective. Yes. Harvard was a measure. Correct. Ah, got it. And that's got where it. people go wrong. Yes. Now, real quick, for my Slayer Gold members, y'all know exactly what Ernest is talking about. And if you're not a member and, you, and you're scratching your head right now, well, you should be. SlayerGoals.com. Keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, I don't believe that I have the proper tools to go out into the space mm-hmm. of the world to create what it is that I desire. I didn't have enough. So I said, what is it that I can do, quote unquote, so that I could prepare myself or empower myself so that I can take my place Mm -hmm. in this world? And then I had two options. I said, well, I can continue. I can continue educating myself in the business space. Mm -hmm. But I was like, no, I can teach myself business. And I had a natural inclination and instinct for business. Got it. I said, well, what could I do? I said, oh. If I know law, if I already know business, I got that part. But if I know law, I'd be unstoppable. Ah, so you create this goal to expand your knowledge and understand United States law. Correct. U.S. law. Yeah. Okay. But you don't stop there. No. Because, I mean, you could have just, you could have gone to UIC. And and nothing wrong with those schools, right? I mean, nothing wrong with these schools. Well, you can't go to UIC for law. But, you know, John Marshall's here. I mean, there's other schools here that you could, good schools. Well, it's twofold. Well, the knowledge, quote, unquote, is important or, quote, unquote, most important. Mm -hmm. But the other measure is you need the pass. I'm like, so, well, let me go ahead and get a pass. It's like a hall pass. Uh So I said, well, I don't want to just go to law school. I need to go to a top 10 law school. Got it. So that was the goal. The goal then was to attend a top 10 law school. Got it. All right. So you have an objective. The objective is, state it for me real quick. To empower myself. To empower yourself. The measure is to go to a top 10 Law school. Yes. Now, for those of you listening, what I'm what I'm doing is really I'm trying to break down how Attorney Fenton set this goal. Okay. So objective, and then he has a measure. Yes. All right. Now what? So then I did research. I had to research what was required in order that I meet that goal of being in a top ten law school. So I went to the library. Okay. And I started reading books, and then they said, okay, what do you, you know, what's necessary for entrance? Mm-hmm. They said, well, you have to take this test called the LSAT. You know, you have to have particular grades. You know, they like it when you have, you know, some background activities. Mm-hmm. And then I started putting all my stuff on the table. I was like, well, you know, I have the grades. I did well at Chicago State. I had the background and experience because I had internships at the Congressional Black Caucus. I had an internship with First Chicago Bank. You were engaged. I was engaged. You were engaged. And I had something that most people didn't have or a lot of people didn't have that were applying for law schools. And what was that? 
military experience. I was waiting for Linnell to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yep. I had experience. history. You had history. I had, had experience. I had experience. Yes, life experience. I had life experience. You weren't just someone trying to get into a school. You were a veteran who had been around the world who was engaged in his undergraduate process trying to get into a law school. Which we can end this right now. Got it. Linnell got it. Yep. That was the difference maker. But here's, I got to add this to it. So real quick, before you add, one of the questions I want you to be thinking about is what differentiates you? See, you know, this is your story, but my story, I know how I went from in corporate America from entry level to vice president and officer without a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree because I knew what differentiated me. And I right. played to that, Correct. Right? which was my ability to learn and right. then execute. Right. Correct. So I played to that. What I'm hearing is you differentiated yourself. Correct. You set yourself apart so that you could achieve extraordinary things. Correct. Got it. But Linnell. While I was going through the process of mm-hmm. differentiating myself, I did not know that's what I was doing. You're just doing it. I was just doing it. Got it. That's why it's important to be like a child. I do have to say something. At this point, there is a sense of identity. Yes. It's that sense of identity that has you differentiating yourself. Yes. It's that sense of identity. Like, I, I don't want to look past that right? because I, I also believe that one of the reasons that many people don't differentiate themselves is because they lack identity yes. or their identity has been stolen or they have a false identity. Yeah. And it starts at five years old when you're coloring. Ah, tell me about that. I mean, it goes back to the story yeah. when I said I was five and I was in this classroom and I had to. I'm going to be the best colorer. Yes. Ah, that's where you. Your identity was, I'm going to be the best. Yeah, me. You made that a part of your identity. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is that early on, you made an agreement with yourself to tap into your greatness. Yes. Now, the beautiful thing about this for the listeners is you may not have done it as early as Attorney Fenton, but you can do it right now, and it will make a significant difference in the rest of your life. Yeah. And I know that for sure. Yeah. Because for me, identity didn't come until I was in my 20s. I was lost until about 23. Right. You got yours early. Yeah, I was on fire at 17. See, it's that. I tell people this, and I, but I don't want to lose something mm-hmm. about power. I don't want to lose something about power. Well, I'll just jump to power. In the story, that differentiation. So, one, the key to success, and that's what the segment is about, right. is differentiate yourself. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the yeah. key. Uh-huh. That's a key. But here's the other key, Linnell, which I didn't get at the time. I just stumbled into it subconsciously maybe. Mm-hmm. But I was aware of what I had. I knew my hand. Wow. Your power. The, the reason I went to Harvard, Linnell, is because I knew my hand. And I played my hand. I got to say this. So many of us, Mm -hmm. we have bought into the story that we don't have a hand that's worth playing. Mm. And we do. And we do. Every every card can win. 
Every card can win. You got to know how to play the two of Every spades. Every card can win. Yes. You just got to know how to play it. You got to know how to play it. I love that. That's quotable. <laughs> I love that. But that's when I got conscious that I have a hand. I woke up. I was like, okay, what'll get you, what will get me into a top 10 school? Actually, it's kind of started. I said, I'm going top 10. I'll settle for top 20. Okay. Let me tell you about indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Linnell. You want to talk about success? I had indoctrinated myself so much that I told me from 39th and Lake Park and from Markham, a 17-year-old CD high school student, that I was settling if I went to a top 20 law school. Nice. Well, but but, (laughs) but that's important. That's my point. That's important. That's my point. Yes. See, we indoctrinate ourselves the opposite way. If I can just get into college. Not even if I can just survive. Man. Okay. You're right. You got to tell yourself another story. Because, yes. I learned to tell myself stories of how great I am and what I deserve from this world. So then subconsciously you deliver. Yes, sir. Now, I talk about this. <laughs> I talk about this every Sunday since in 2018 and every Saturday at 10 p.m. for the last five years. I've been talking about this. I haven't said it like that, but I've been talking about this. People who listen to me, <laughs> yes. they hear me talk about And this is one of the reasons why I, I wanted to begin to interview people, because it shifts the context. Yeah. We learn in story. Yeah. And what I'm hoping right now is that your story is inspiring somebody. Somebody like the scales are falling off their eyes right now. And they're like, oh, okay. And by the way, notice that everything that we're talking about is about personal responsibility. And I want to be clear about something. So I had Celine and Domati on the show a couple mm-hmm, of weeks ago. Yeah. All right. And we were talking about king and experience and, and uh somehow reparations came up mm-hmm. i gave my stance on reparations i am for reparations mm-hmm. and Celine was shocked mm-hmm. he was like what and I, I know the reason he was shocked i understand because i talk about personal responsibility correct right but i also understand that the united states of america has to own up to the sin right and part of the gesture of owning up to the sin is something like reparations yeah. right so i, I want to be clear here right that yeah i believe in the United States of America owning up to their sin mm-hmm. through reparations, but I ain't sitting up and waiting for it. Right. I'm taking personal responsibility. Right. That's what I hear you saying. Right. Personal responsibility and also telling yourself a narrative about your own greatness. Yeah. Yeah. That's not arrogant. That's not conceited. <laughs> Listeners, that's not conceited. It's not arrogant. It is your God-given right because you breathe. Because you breathe, you are great. Because you breathe, you are able to do anything that you put your mind to. You can create anything that you say you can create. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Go ahead. And you got to put in the work. Yeah. All right. So you went to Harvard. Tell me about the resistance at Harvard. Let me tell you this. Now Now tune in. Linnell, here's the resistance at Harvard. Uh-huh. There is no resistance at Harvard. Tell me about it. Tell, 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 so tell me what you mean by that. Because somebody, somebody listening or, or even someone listening who went to Harvard would say, nah, I have resistance. No so, resistance so, so tell me Harvard. what you mean by that. 
the most complex spaces mm-hmm. are oftentimes the easiest spaces. I get that. I get that. Yeah. Harvard as an institution, their culture is of excellence and success. Mm-hmm. And everyone they invite into their institution of excellence and success, they invest in your excellence and your success. They don't put up resistance. Got it. You know, that would that would line up with something I read from Jeff Howard, who was a sociologist who graduated from Harvard and did a study on black students at Harvard. And what he found is that in their freshman and sophomore year, that they had grades that were equitable to their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. But those grades fell off in the junior and senior year. Yeah. Right. And he got curious by this and stayed in Harvard, got his graduate degree in sociology and studied this thing. And what he found was that there was no racism, <laughs> that there was no inequity, mm-hmm. but instead there was a lack of efficacy on the part of the black student. Mm-hmm. This is, and by the way, Jeff Howard's a black man. Okay. What he found was that black students didn't engage their professors. Yes. That they stayed to themselves. And so as a result, the professor didn't know them. Yes. And so would have to guess around the context of their work. Yes. Whereas with a white student, he could say, well, I know John meant this because they were in conversation. Yes. I was going there. So tell me. And this is profound right here, and this is my breakthrough. Yeah. The resistance that I got at Harvard was me. Ah. Mm. So what what did you learn about <laughs> Ernest Fenton at Harvard? That I was in my head. I struggled because I was a black man at Harvard. So everything that got me to Harvard, the fact that I could navigate and just be me, uh-huh. when I stepped through those doors, then I went back and reclaimed all that baggage. Ah, so you carried in all <laughs> your bags with you. Yeah. Bag lady. <laughs> So I got in my head, (laughs) Yes. who am I as a black man now in Uh, this privileged institution? Yeah. I'm not being called nigger at Harvard. Got it. I don't ever recall hearing the word. They're doing everything they can to make me feel comfortable. To empower you. Now I'm uncomfortable. Uh, We be standing in our own way. I said it that way. We be standing in our own way. Sometimes they have opened the doors and we won't walk through because we remember the other doors that were slammed on us. Mm. So I had to retrain myself and teach myself how to work through this baggage of non-resistance. It's easy for black folk to work through resistance because we were born of resistance. Mm -hmm. But what happens when there is no resistance? We create it. We create resistance. You know what I call that? (laughs) In in my profession, what I call that? Self-sabotage. Yes. Self. I ask my clients. (laughs) Yes. Where are you sabotaging yourself? And they're like, huh? And then a week yes. later, they come back with a list and they're like, yo, yes. this is crazy. <laughs> I'm sabotaging myself here. I'm sabotaging my marriage here. Yes. I'm sabotaging my work here. Yes. I'm sabotaging my health here. Yes. Where are you sabotaging yourself? Yes. Got it. So you began to learn how you self-sabotage. Yes. How old were you? 23. Man. Okay. 
So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, at this point, I get it. I get why you are who you are and you've achieved what you achieved. 24 years old, something clicks and says, this is how I self-sabotage. Yeah. Now what? Now I had to learn, and it took me many years, and I'm just now getting there. Mm-hmm. Then I had to learn how to accept my blessings. <laughs> And I've been I've been struggling with accepting Let, my blessings. Let's talk about that <laughs> for 15, 20 years. So because it took me. So like I said, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, you wouldn't know I didn't have a bachelor's degree. I would hide that from you. Right. Because I, I didn't understand how significant that was, like the kind of narrative that tells people about me, about how great I am. Right. Right. Yeah. I would hide it because I was embarrassed that I had to work that hard to achieve those roles without necessarily going the conventional way. Right. Now I see like, yo, that's, that's crazy. That's amazing. Right. <laughs> but I get it. I've had to do a lot of work to get there. Right. Right. To fully accept my blessings. Yeah. To fully accept my greatness to the point where I can say it. Right. With thousands of people listening. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was a time where that did just wouldn't come out of my mouth. Right. Right. So here we are. You get it. I get it. People are listening and hopefully, hopefully they're beginning to get it. They're, they're beginning to understand the dialogue, right? Right. How, how does this shift who attorney Ernest Fenton is today, right? So, and, and here's what I mean by that. You understand you, how you sabotage yourself. Like, mm-hmm. I get that about me. I can see myself. I see it happening. I'm like, what are you doing? Right? Yeah. I see it happening. I'm sure you're the same way. Yeah, yeah. Right? You can see it happening now. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's a conversation now. Uh-huh. It's not just what happened. It's like, right. okay, dude, what are you doing? All right? But not just that, but you're also, you're fully aware of your greatness. 2018, mm-hmm. January 28th, fully aware of your greatness. Okay? Mm-hmm. You've had your trials and tribulations, and you understand how important that is to your process. So in a lot of ways, you would say what we say is you're woke. Right. And that, that term cracks me up because a lot of people who use it still sleep. If they use it more, you can almost bet they're not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Like they like, you know, stay woke. And I'm like, uh, yeah, where your alarm clock at. Right. Yeah. So what now? I mean, we got 30 minutes left in the show. I got mm-hmm. a few phone calls and I, I really want to, I want to tap into your process now. Okay. Okay, and, and by the way, we skipped over some stuff. I mean, you lived and worked in Kenya, Nairobi, yeah, while you were in law school. Yeah, real quick, two minutes. What was that like? I mean, you were in law school. Yeah, this is after law school. No, that was during law. School. During law school. Yeah, and you were an entrepreneur. You owned your own store, right, at Evergreen Plaza. Yeah, while in law school. Two minutes on that, like. So 1993, I go to law school Mm -hmm. after my first year of law school. Now, remind you, I never went to law school to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. I told you I went to law school to be empowered and to get smart. Got it. And so I never wanted to practice law. So after my first year of law school, you know, I decided to go on an adventure. And uh, Charles Ogletree. Hold on one second. Remember the objective we talked about? folks? Yes. The measure was graduating from Harvard Law School. Yeah. That wasn't the point. The point was the objective. Correct. I just want to call that out. Yeah, and that's yeah. critical. That's why people are lost. 
and I just had a breakthrough because I'll give my, this is one thing I will give my credit myself credit on is that I stuck to my objective. Yes. Nice. nice. I didn't peer yeah. off and say, well, let me go to a law firm. Uh, I knew that I was where, there. Where you could have at Harvard Law? Yeah, I could have wrote right. my ticket. Quarter million coming out, maybe? Yes. I mean, the least would have been 150 to 200,000. Right. So here you are. That wasn't the point. No. You're like, no, nah, I have a different objective. Yeah, yeah. I'm about to go do that. Right. So after my first year of law school, um, I get a, an internship in Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya, at the Kenyan Human Rights Commission. And while I'm there, I discovered artifacts and jewelry and art, which, you know, I'm an artsy person and my travels through Europe right. all led me to art and being a black man. Uh-huh. So I started a retail store at Evergreen Plaza in 1994. It was right on the bottom level, right next to Carson Perry Scott, called Ernest James and then later nice. Ernest Brandon. Got it. Yep. So that's how that happened. And I ran that for seven years and four years after I graduated law school. So my first five, six years after law school, I did not practice law. I graduated law school in 97. You know, it wasn't until really 2002 I started dabbling. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't even call it practice. Mm -hmm. So that's how that happened. Got it. And then now you're practicing law. So then you transition to law. Yeah. For what? Why? Now here's the transition. Mm-hmm. Linnell, we've been looking for a part, another one. Mm-hmm. See, the reason, part of the reason I couldn't practice law, and perhaps part of the reason why I went into law, part of the reason I went into law school um, saying that I did not want to practice law is because I could not identify myself in the space of law as it was presented to me. Because mm-hmm. law firms were for stiff, you know, three-piece suit-wearing white men, you uh, know, with briefcases yeah. making billionaires more billions. Got it. And I couldn't identify that as a black man from 39th and Lake Park and Markham. So that wasn't me. I didn't fit in. Got it. So I could not begin practicing law until I can imagine or create a space in the law that looked like me. Vision. Yes. You couldn't practice law until you had a vision for law. Correct. In my life, (sighs) law had to fit into me. I refused to fit into the law. Because of your objective. Correct. Got it. And that's how I ended up here on WVON. Ah. Because now I can practice law in a way that looks like me. Got it. Mm. Now... (laughs) One of the things I've learned about successful people, and this is from reading, this is from listening, and even in this conversation, it's reinforcing it. Successful people are stubborn to the vision. Yeah. They're stubborn to the vision. Man, after I left corporate America, I got phone calls from two high-profile Internet companies. Yo. They say yo. But basically, this is how this is how it landed in my ear. Yo, we want you to represent us for diversity. Right. Because that's the role I played when I left chief Mm -hmm. diversity officer. I know I could have made some real cheddar Mm -hmm. if I had pivoted. But the goal, the objective was to create myself Mm -hmm. as a global entrepreneur, not working for anyone else. Right. Mm-hmm. That that space had opened. And so my stubborn resolve was no. And by the way, Pam was like, um, you sure? 
<laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because looking at the numbers, it's like, you know, you haven't necessarily made any money as an entrepreneur. Not like that, right? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? And then after I said no, everybody else in terms of clientele told me no for six months. So it had me questioning myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious about your stubborn resolve first on the vision, but then what you had to press to to maintain the vision. You said something critical. That was a great transition because now it got mm-hmm. me in that space. Right. Because, you know, when I graduated law school and I was running my store. Right. And I grew it to maybe two uh, two stores, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I made a little money, but I had many, there were many times where I didn't know if I could make my payroll. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was also investing in real estate. I had three or four properties. Mm-hmm. And I had of four properties, I had three of them were in foreclosure. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason why. Failure, by the way. I went into foreclosure Failure. because I experienced it. Yep. So when I tell people, I have experience. They don't understand what I'm saying to them. So I know about foreclosure because I was in foreclosure. Me too. I've been there. I know what it feels like to not be able to go to sleep. I know about the creditors calling your phone. Absolutely. You know. The bank saying what you going to do. Yes. So like Linnell said, all that was my resistance. Uh And then my resolve and my commitment to who I was was called into question Mm. by me, and I had to endure through that. So the reason why I'm able to be successful now is because I already know what I'm going to do when my back is pressed against the wall. I already know how I'm going to respond to pressure, Linnell. Got it. (laughs) I I just had a major breakthrough. Yes. You know what my breakthrough was? And this is important especially for the folks who are on the Slayer Goals journey with me. Up until now, I've been relating to resistance as something external. Yeah. And and what you just revealed to me (laughs) is that resistance is not external. It's not. It's internal. It's all about the interpretation. Yes. It's all about, dude, it just clicked. Yes. It it has not occurred to me this way ever. Yes. This is about to shift something. Yes. Resistance is fully internal. It is. We interpret it as external. Correct. But it's how I'm interpreting what's external, which means it's internal. Correct. All my resistance is me. I heard something by, I think it was Gary Vanders, someone, or like Tony Robbins or someone recently. Uh Got it. And what they said was the different, and maybe you did this, maybe you posted this. But anyhow, it says, what he said, what he learned about successful people is that they don't interpret pressure as pressure. They interpret pressure as opportunity. You don't see most people when they see pressure, they process pressure into fear and fear into complacency and sleepless nights and anxiety and depression. Mm. Successful people process pressure into opportunity and then into excitement. I get excited by my pressure. Ah, and that's one of the things I say all the time. <laughs> yes. One of the things I say all the time is you have to invite your resistance. Yes. Hello. Ooh, that's a lot of resistance. This must be good. Yes. I must be on the right path. Exactly. And a lot of us say, uh-oh, resistance. 
I must be doing something wrong. Yes. I, I probably should change my position on this. Yes. Um, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. And it's you're doing the exact right thing. Yeah. If resistance shows up, if you feel the pressure, you are moving in the right direction. Yes. Got it. And I tell and I have to give this out because it's so critical. Mm-hmm. And that's why I put a little pressure or a lot of pressure on people. And they, they take it as I'm putting a lot of pressure on them. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm putting a little pressure on you. It's like how a diamond shaped. Pressure. All good things are shaped through pressure. Black folk in America through pressure. Yeah. America itself, pressure. Yes. We try to save not just ourselves from pressure, which is damaging to us because now we're not giving ourselves an opportunity to grow. Because that's but where the, growth and strength comes yeah, from. Yeah, but the real harm, Linnell, comes in that we do it to other people. Ah, we try to save them from it. We try to save our children from pressure. Ah. We're trying to save our spouse from pressure. Oh, man. No, it's funny. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's funny. Perfect example. Pam, don't get mad. <laughs> oh, Lord, she's mad. But it's about her baby. <laughs> so so she, every mother will understand. So Legend is laying in the bed, He's he, and this is when he first started rolling over, and he rolled over on his arm so he couldn't move. Right. I was the closest to him. Pam said, help him. I said, no. <laughs> right. She's like, Linnell, help him. And I'm like, he needs to figure it out. Right. And she was like, why aren't you helping your baby? <laughs> right. And he started to whine. <laughs> he's whining, right? Right. Because he's got to figure it out. Right. Pressure. Right. Resistance. Right. That's one of the roles follow. We don't even want to fall into this. This is no, one of the roles fathers play. Yeah. And that's one of the problems in our community right now. Correct. Not enough pressure in the household it's on the boys. Not enough pressure on the boys. Pressure. Yep. I put pressure on them. Yeah. And then they get uncomfortable. They don't want to be around. I put pressure on them. But that's the only way that they're going to grow. And their mamas are going to coddle them. And that's why. I mean, but you know what? I just had this conversation with my wife last night. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad because we both have evolved. Uh-huh. See, and this is the other part, Linnell. See, right when you caught Pam uh-huh. doing what Pam does as a mother, well, I caught which is her role, which is her role. That's what I'm saying. See, then we ca- we don't catch ourselves doing what we do the opposite. So just like it's your role to allow more pressure and to be the father that sort of manages that pressure, it's her role to be the mother, to be the nurturer. And when we have mutual respect for those roles, that's it. We're in sync. Yes. Yep. Because I know, I, <laughs> yes. I know that my son yes. has knocked his head, has experienced more discomfort when I'm with him than he's when, when he's with Yeah, his that's why it's necessary. It. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, that's why it's necessary. If, if she was around, like last night, I, I mean, I had him all day yesterday. <laughs> if she was around, she would have been gasping and, oh, stop, what are you doing? What's going on? Right? Yeah. But for me, I know you're safe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you rolled over. You're disorientated. Yeah. Get, get yourself together. Right? <laughs> right? Right. Get yourself together. That's my role. Right. All right. We got a few phone calls, man. Let's let's get to some of these phone calls real quick. Sal, thank you for thank you for holding, brother. How are you, man? Great, man. Uh, let me first say that when I tuned in, I said, "Damn, this is the first kid I have ever heard on WVON." Until I found out that it was four decade old Fenton. <laughs> 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 I was, but <I> <laughs> now do this, get this kid on here. And I said, oh, my God. And, and I'm just enjoying the conversation and then find out it's his old ass. 
<laughs> I have enjoyed you all so much this morning. I appreciate it. Awesome. It really speaks to the benefit of stone on stone. Mm. I, I have uh, appreciated the two of you congratulating each other's teaching the other. And that's been profound. Linnell, you know, I, I haven't called in, mm-hmm. into your Saturday night show for some time, and I was so glad to see you come on. I mean, just straight out of the starting blocks with a a team, Celine yeah, and yeah. Um, Domati, mm-hmm. that it was just powerful. I called in that morning, but... Yeah, we had a lot I, of calls. I wasn't favored. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. favored with the opportunity to, yeah. you know, yeah. to speak. But I, Sorry I really that. enjoyed you all. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed you doing your series on lessons to my son, which I hope you will uh, share yeah. Yeah. with the AM audience. That will, it was. That will be a book, eventually. Thank you. So I may never share it again on the air. But they well, they'll be able to listen to it in audio form through the website and lessons to my son. Lessons to teach my son is a book that I'm working on. Okay, mm-hmm. Perry has uh, applauded you so much. I've, uh, I've appreciated that. And I, I want to say that um, I've recognized something different in her and she credits you so much. Mm, but yeah. I want Perry to know who I'm sure is listening now. I was your first uh, media mentee when you suggested that everybody yep. needs a, a media mentee. And we talked about that. Yep. Yep. Um, As a matter of fact, Ernest, let's talk about mentors in a moment. Oh, but, okay. yeah, thank you for that, Sal. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we did talk about that on the phone. Yeah. Lastly, I have uh, also told Ben over his show how much I appreciate the way he has unapologetically talked about his education, mm-hmm. going to Harvard. Mm-hmm. He hasn't tried to hide it. He doesn't throw it out there to wave any flags. But it's to, to point out that, yes, I did this. Mm-hmm. I am this damn qualified. And I appreciate that so much. Awesome. Listening to you all, I've, I have wondered, not wondered, but I've said that I'm going to make sure that my 14 well, he's 13 now. My 13-year-old grandson started listening to you because I want, he's a brilliant young man, mm-hmm. going through some, some difficult times, as we all did. Yep, yep. But I, um, I want him to, if it's not me, that he's willing to listen to, and, and I, I want to find somebody mm-hmm. that I can put in his ear and in his soul and in his spirit to understand how brilliant he is, which I, I always tell him mm-hmm. that he has been blessed from day one. I mean, the kid is. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're all great. And if your grandson listens to this, and by the way, he could do it on YouTube. A lot of young people like YouTube, so he can check me out on YouTube. If he so listens I can get him to, off those games. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, let him, let him go through his process. I mean, we, yeah, yeah. Um, he'll, he'll come around. And uh, when he does come around, I'm on YouTube for him. So thank you can always check this week. out. Marcel, thank you last so much for the phone call. What, what, what was that? One last thought, please. One last thought, please. Okay. Last week, you said, understand that if you identify a goal, expect objections. Mm-hmm. I took that as a way of trying to slay a demon of fear that still hangs around 
mm-hmm. in terms of believing in my own vision. Mm. I put out last Wednesday a video on YouTube called Sales Dark Moments oh. in which I'm I'm presenting okay. my whole vision for cleaning up Wabash Avenue from 37th Street to 63rd. Okay. I hope that you'll watch it. Look forward to talking to I'll, you later. I'll check it out. All, All right. right. And, thank, and thank you so much. You're Thanks. welcome. Yeah, and thank you for what you do, Sal. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. All right. <clears throat> um, good phone call there. All right. We got uh, Frank, real quick. Frank, how are you? I'm okay, my brother. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Attorney Ben, I compliment you on your accomplishment. Uh, but I must say, my brother, your, um, I want to ask you a question. Your perspective motivation is very inspirational. I've listened to you before, but it's coming from one side of a coin. I would like to know, Tony Benton, uh, if you're a man, were you raised by your mom and your biological father or your mom along without no living stepfather or boyfriend destruct, uh, destroying your aspiration to succeed in what you did? What words of advice would you give to our young brothers amazing them who Aspirational going to college up being crushed by what I call the stepfather slash mama's new boyfriend disease that's plaguing our race like locusts and stopping a lot of young men from going to college because the mentality towards them is get a job and get out. But not towards their sister, which would be the steps daughter. Oh, she can hang out for long as she wants to. Mm-hmm. What advice, what speech, what motivation can you give to those young men who want to even be in the position that you had was in and had? Oh, man. I think he got cut. Yeah. He got cut. So, no, okay. um, I mean, my mother and father were both in the household for the most part. So, yeah, I was raised, quote, unquote, by my mother and father. But, you know, I was a latchkey kid. Mm. So I was like, you know, I didn't have direction in that sense. I had to pick it up through the cues, which I accept. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. And, um, you know, I, I hate to give advice in that way. You know, only thing I can say to them is, um, you know, you you got to learn how to transition. Linnell used the word pivot. Yeah. And you can't look at your circumstance. And I'll go back to something we said. That's not your entire hand. I need you to look at everything you got. Yep. You know, so if what you don't have is, you know, the queen of diamonds or the ace of clubs because you don't have a daddy, but you got the jack of hearts because you're athletic. <laughs> you know, yep. because, you know, you got a full deck of playing cards because Linnell said because you're breathing, because you got two arms and two legs and eyes and you have a brain. Yep. So, like, I just say I need you to take account of all of your assets yep. and then I need you to then I need you to play that hand right there and then look at what you don't have as another indication of how great you are and that you're still going to accomplish what it is you set out to accomplish. Yep. Nice. I'm done. I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you just shared. Yeah. And that, that gives me two places I want to go in the next five minutes. We've got 10 minutes left for the show. Yeah. One is mentorship, right? Mm-hmm. What role did leadership, mentorship, play in your life, virtual or physical? Because I, I do believe I've had physical mentors who've had an impact and virtual mentors who've had an impact. In some ways, my virtual mentors have had more of an impact, yeah. right? So that, and then secondly, the question that we started with that we haven't addressed, 
around your perspective on what's next for our community. Okay. So mentors, I had one, but he wasn't a conscious mentor. Mm -hmm. And that was my father, who's also my hero. Got it. So I I had the benefit Mm -hmm. of being able to watch my father up close and personal and struggle as a man. Yeah, got it. You know, and that's a whole nother conversation. So that's my mentor. But I get it. I get it. But I didn't have any direct mentors. There were no direct men who took me in mm-hmm. ever to this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm still looking around. No, no, there are a few who come. Don't get me. No, some, some inspired me. So let me not say that. I take that one back. But yeah. I have virtual mentors. But I get that. And yes, that is attorney Finn. And by the way, I get that because you are polarizing. In how you think, in how you conduct yourself in life. And often, uh, people who are polarizing are misunderstood. Pam and I have talked about you in this way, right? And that I say, you know, somebody will say something about Attorney Fenton, and I'll listen, and then I'll say, hmm, that's interesting. They don't understand him. And the reason they don't understand him is that they get caught up in his polarizing way of being because you are so resolute and since most people are confused (laughs) resolution triggers them right because you are so direct because most people aren't that triggers them right so i get that about you and i actually appreciate it Mm -hmm. and i also understand why that would put you in a position where you don't have many mentors Mm -hmm. i get that Mm -hmm. i get that and so for you, sir, that's that's a you know, in some ways, it's a blessing, because then what I'm getting is you've learned using other vehicles. What would you say your top three are? I watch people. You observe it. Yeah. OK. I, I tell people, if you crack the door, I can see everything in the room. Uh-huh. So, like, I pick up stuff real quick. Uh-huh. I hear very well, mm. even when like I'm not paying attention and I see. I know I think my wife gets that about me now. I'll be like, oh, okay. So well, why were you doing X, Y, and Z? She's like, what are you talking about? I wasn't doing it. I was like, yes, you were. I saw you. Mm-hmm. I see. Got it. Got it. <laughs> you know? Right. And um, early on, you know, I was I read. I ventured out in my mind. I used to read a lot. As bad as I was in high school, I would always read. I was reading books and the dictionary and encyclopedias. Y'all, y'all hear that? Because I think a lot of times people see one lane and they don't see the other lane. I'm yeah. happy you shared that. So you're observant, you read. What's the third? Oh, I experience. Uh, I fall down. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of bumps and bruises, man. Yeah, I did, I did, I've done yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay with I fall down a lot. Uh-huh. And it's all right. And that's something we didn't talk about are the failures. I've had some significant failures. Yeah. I'm sure you have too. Yeah. We talked, we both talked about owning property, being in a real estate game and foreclosing. That's a failure. Yeah. I know how my business, my stores, I was evicted from my last store. Okay. They set my stuff out on the sidewalk. Wow. So you, you, (laughs) you've been forged. Yeah. By failure in a lot of ways. But see, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. When I'm failing, I never perceive it that way. Just learning something. Yeah, it wasn't a failure to me. Uh huh. Just learn something new. That's all. Yep. It's just a process. It's all a process. Yep. Hey, I mean, I, I can recall the foreclosure of real estate, and after I got complete with it, right, I was okay. I forgave mm-hmm. myself for the failure, right? Because mm-hmm. one of the things we do is we get caught up in it. 
we make it mean something about us. Yeah, yeah. Right? So once I got past that, then I'm like, oh, wait. Mm, that's going to make me better. Yeah. If I play this game, now I know how to play it a different way. Yeah. So we lose the lesson because we don't see our cause in the thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Like every, it's like all of my failures, I can look at it and say, okay, if I would have done this, 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 and this, none of that would have happened. And what I realized is that I took something small and I made it big and then I've created this failure. And it's just very small shifts. All I had to do to not be evicted was call the owner of the mall who liked me. And I didn't call him. If I would have picked up the phone and said, listen. Self-sabotage. Yes. Yep. Self-sabotage. That's all I had to do. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) All right. So what's next for our community? I mean, here you are, whether you want to be or not, a leader, right, Mm -hmm. in our community, someone who has a voice in this community, but not just a voice, someone who is in action, helping preserve the community with your experience and knowledge, helping to preserve wealth in this community, right? Uh, Helping to create legacy in our community. What would you say to, and, and you haven't at all advertised your business and what you do. So let's do all that together. What would you say? All right. In our community, and don't worry about the business. First off, we need a divorce. No, no, no. Don't worry about the business. First, let's let's start there. Who are you and where can they find you? Attorney Ernest B. Fenton, 708-991-7268. Every Saturday, Social Justice Hour right here on the WVON. Yes. That's me. Okay. Right? And and we have to do that because I understand. you are owed that because of what you shared in the last two hours. I got you. Yeah. And that's also like learning to accept your blessings. Take it. Yep. So... First, there needs to be a divorce. Black folk need to divorce. We need to divorce ourselves of the same story that we have been recycling for the past 100 years. Number one, we cannot move forward until we divorce ourselves of the slave mentality, that indoctrination. We have been accepted into Harvard Law School. There is no resistance. The doors are open. And we're still talking about what happened in grammar school. We will not move forward we will not allow ourselves to graduate high school Linnell Mm. Mm. you gotta divorce yourself from the story that's number one and then we need to marry we need to remarry we have to go through the engagement process of healing and we have to get to know ourselves and then we have to remarry ourselves with the ideals of who we are as a people which is powerful which is powerful yeah so we have to understand that now i'm about to marry powerful me and now i'm about to marry you know unobstructed me all opportunity me unstoppable me i'm about to marry that person as an individual him or her and then as a collective him or her then we need to remarry well said sir it's one last step. Give it to me. And then we must give birth. <laughs> of course. Then we need to go ahead and populate. We need to we need to we need to um we need to we need to spread our seed, our new healthy seed. What you're doing right now. Yeah. What we're doing right now. Yeah. Absolutely. That's it. Attorney Finn, thank you.